The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody. Uh, really grateful for the teachers that were here to teach while I was away on retreat. And um, just feel re-inspired about the power of the practice to transform our experience from being weighed down or confused by experience, tight in life. We really want to have a sense that this practice we're interested in is not just relevant theoretically or takes care of us later when we've been a really good practitioner, but that somehow it works right now for us. And that's really our barometer. One of the things right from the very beginning when I started practice in 1982, the thing I liked most about coming across these teachings from the Buddha is that he put the experience of dukkha or stress right in the middle, right in front. And uh, it was something I was familiar with. (laughs) Maybe some of you have experienced stress in your life or the experience of physical, mental, emotional contraction or a sense of heaviness. And we're interested in dukkha or stress, not because we're morbid, but because actually it, it helps guide the practice. Because as I've just said, the practice works. So if the experience of stress isn't being transformed, we're probably not practicing. We're doing something else. We're thinking about practice, for example, or we're comparing what we think our practice is to somebody else's practice or any number of other things. But if the heart isn't being, in a sense, liberated or freed up from some burden that it's experiencing, then we're not practicing. But that doesn't mean that we can make pain disappear. But what we can do in any moment, if we're practicing, is we can transform the mind or the heart's relationship with mental discomfort, physical discomfort, emotional discomfort, even an existential uneasiness. We can transform how the heart or mind is relating to it or holding it or being with it. That can be transformed. If I'm old and my body's falling apart, that the practice can't transform. But the way that my mind is relating to the experience of physical pain, of aging, that can be transformed in a minute. And we have to have this seed of faith that that the experience of stress can be turned on its head, can be flipped in any moment. Otherwise, we're not actually interested in looking in the moment. What, what motivates our interest to be interested in the present moment is some sense of possibility that it's relevant, you know, that it, opening to the present moment is relevant because it is possible to feel free from the weight that our mind creates, the contraction that our mind creates, the fear and greed, neediness that our mind creates. That we can be free of. And then the path the Buddha described 
right from the first talk was what he calls the middle way. And it's important to understand that the middle way that the Buddha taught isn't some strategy like don't eat too much, but don't eat too little. Don't get your don't turn your thermostat too high, but don't keep it too low. Don't have too many friends, but have some friends. So I mean that's maybe commonsensical that sort of aimed on the middle as uh, a general rule of thumb, but that's not really what the Buddha meant by the middle way. What he meant by the middle way was more that uh, not this and not that. So he identified two extremes that human beings, people like us, fall into all the time. The extreme of thinking that if only I get a bunch of pleasant experiences, then I'll be happy. You know, if I could just take care of the stiffness in my hip and my knee, if I could just wake up a little bit more, I'm so sleepy today, if I could just figure out how to make my partner the way I need this person to be, if I could just figure out, you know, how to make the world feel safe for me, then I'd be happy. So this the Buddha considered one extreme in the sense that it never leads to happiness. It's not like we can completely ignore trying to make things more pleasant for ourselves. We're going to be involved in that anyway. There's really no way to avoid that. And it's not inherently bad. What makes it unskillful is when we think that pleasant experience, capturing, getting pleasant experience, is going to lead to a lasting happiness, or what we call in Buddhist practice, peace, a heart that's at ease or free from what's stressful. And and in this chapter that uh, we're reading, chapter 26, for those of you who are following along in Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, he's very explicit about this. He says, neither happiness nor unhappiness is peaceful. The Buddha taught we have to let go of both. This is the middle way. So, and then another place, so when you're happy, your mind isn't peaceful. It really isn't. This is what Atacha says. And for us, we don't want to just believe that. We want to look. When you're experiencing happiness, you know, hopefully every day we have moments of at least relative happiness, right? So we want to get interested in those moments of happiness. It's not our habit to be interested in happiness. Our habit when we're feeling relatively pleasant experience is to not pay attention because we think we're where we want to be because it's pleasant. So why bother to pay attention? And then when we're not happy or when we're experiencing unpleasant experience, then we pay attention because it's not where we want to be. But we also want to pay attention to our pleasant experience. Is, it, is pleasant experience deeply satisfying? Is it peaceful? But we've all had a lot of pleasant experience. I mean, even those of us or people who have relatively miserable lives, even those people have some pleasant experience. But the satisfaction or the ease or whatever we got from that pleasant experience, obviously it's pretty ephemeral because we're never satisfied. We always want more. We sometimes think, you know, when we're having a really nice experience that Okay, now I can die. You know, I've had everything I've needed. But you know, it's not true because 
very quickly, you know, we want to capture it in some way. We want to take a photograph, we want to write it down, we want to call somebody and tell them about our experience or journal or, you know, one way or another, we want more. We want it to continue. We don't want it to just be what it is, which is this thing that comes and goes. So the Buddha says, real peace, happiness, the true meaning of happiness, which is peace, the deepest kind of happiness, which is peace, doesn't arise from somehow orienting toward pleasant experience. And it doesn't arise from obsessing with unpleasant experience, strategizing about how to get rid of unpleasant experience. So even though in a relative sense as a human being, we're going to be dealing with pleasant and unpleasant experience, and of course neutral experience, and we will be making choices, and it's okay to choose pleasant experience when we have a choice and to abandon unpleasant experience when we have that choice. There's nothing wrong with that. But if our mind begins to build a story, tell ourselves a story, that pleasant experience and capturing it or having it somehow will lead to real peace or getting rid of unpleasant experience will lead to real peace, it doesn't really bear out when we pay attention, when we investigate that. And it didn't for the Buddha, and through his own practice, his own waking up or looking deeply in his life, he realized this, what he called the middle way, which was not that, not using all of our life energy to get rid of unpleasant experience, because there's really no end. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've discovered this. It's like we could never end our struggle to get just the right set of clothes for ourselves or just the right kitchen equipment because somebody's always coming up with something a little bit better or the right finish for wood. My wife and I have done some renovations and you know we're really interested in putting some finish on the wood that lo- makes the wood look nice and preserves it but isn't toxic. Well, good luck. It's not easy. You know, and everywhere we look in life, there are these compromises. So these two strategies of maintaining pleasant experience, getting rid of unpleasant experiences, they all fall under the category of me trying to control life to make it the way I want. And the Buddha is saying that he looked carefully, and that doesn't lead to real peace deepest kind of peace. Actually, it leads to suffering. But ignoring that work, that ordinary work of being a human being, is also suffering. Like That's just another way of avoiding suffering that doesn't lead to the end of suffering. One of my teachers, Larry Rosenberg, said, uh, there is an end to suffering, but escaping suffering isn't the end of suffering. Escaping suffering is the cause for suffering. Trying to get rid of the experience of suffering is stressful, clearly. In the same way that trying to get a really nice experience is stressful. It's much more peaceful to be okay with the way that it is. That is such a liberation, to be really okay with the way that it is now. Not to need this moment to be different. It doesn't mean that this moment couldn't be more pleasant. 
the, the mind in this moment not being dependent on the moment being more pleasant or dependent on unpleasantness going away, that's a real liberation, not to need things to be different. And it doesn't, you know, when you look at that statement, it doesn't restrict us from doing something in the moment that will bring about change. It just means that we're feeling free, liberated, okay with the way things are. And then in that place of feeling free, being free, being liberated, why not turn the thermostat up if we're cold or put a sweater on or eat something if we're hungry or call a friend if we're lonely? There's nothing inherently bad in doing that unless we're reinforcing the sense of somebody who's dissatisfied. When we're struggling with experience through aversion and greed, we're reinforcing the experience right now that there is somebody here who's unhappy. Seeking happiness reinforces the experience of being unhappy, right? Needing to get rid of something reinforces the experience of being unhappy. This is why, this is the wave of compassion that hit the Buddha after his insight when he was contemplating, at least as the legend goes, just being a recluse the rest of his life and not sort of see, uh, going out to be a teacher. What really hit him, what moved him, was seeing that, that everybody out there in the world was just like him, a human being wanting to be happy, except that what he realized as he reflected on other people, now that he'd had this deep insight, was they're doing, just as he used to do, exactly what causes their unhappiness. In seeking to be free from unhappiness, they cause their unhappiness. That's the great tragedy. I mean, we know this in just really simplistic ways when we eat more than we should eat, thinking it would make us happy, and then we're miserable. Or watching stupid TV, thinking it's going to make us happy, and we feel like violated by the ignorance of or the manipulation of the TV show. Over and over again, we do things trying to be happy, ending up unhappy. So this is not a, a deep insight. We know this is true. So the Buddha points to this middle way, and that's all he can do. Teachers or people who have some insight, they can't do anything for us, actually. All they can do is, uh, out of compassion, talk about what happened to them, basically. And then we have to do the work by, for a while at least, we have to drop our obsession with getting toward pleasant experience and getting rid of unpleasant experience. And, and then you begin to understand why the, the basic ritual or form of sitting meditation makes sense. Because in this like commitment to sit for 30 minutes or whatever you do every day, right? Everyone practices every day. Or whatever it is for you, maybe a couple times a week. But moving in the direction of practicing every day, a little bit at least. Then the ritual of sitting down someplace that's relatively simple at home, not so cluttered, no phone, dog and cats in the other room or sleeping quietly away from you, no children for that period of time. So that's a pretty rarefied experience for most human beings. It's, we should be so grateful if we are one of those human beings that can actually have 15 minutes of this relative simple 
experience. No bothers, no responsibilities or duties. And we sit down, and by just being still in a relaxed, comfortable way, you see where the, just the form of sitting still is a reminder for, well, if unpleasant experiences comes up for the period of time of my sit, I'm just going to be with it as skillfully as I can, but I'm not going to get up and run from it or distract myself from it. I'm just going to see how I might this heart might be free with whatever it is that's arising, some painful memory, some pain in our ankle because one leg's on top of the other leg and it's falling asleep. And so then we just get interested in that discomfort, but we practice not running from it. And the same way with a pleasant experience. We don't try to make it last. We know that, well, here now, this experience of tranquility or this nice, beautiful wave of, of love has arisen in my heart, my mind, and it's really beautiful, but I'm not struggling to maintain it. I'm just letting things unfold. I'm letting nature unfold. And this is our practice of the middle way. In, deeper, in a deeper sense, the Buddha calls this the unconditioned. In a way, this is another word for the middle way, or another way to think of this is the middle way leads to an understanding or an insight into the unconditioned. What we know from just living our life is we know the conditioned world. Everything we experience, the sights we're seeing right now, the sounds we're hearing right now, the sensations we're feeling in the body now, the thoughts that are being known now, smells and tastes, touches, everything that's being known now is what the Buddha calls the conditioned world. And the conditioned world is always unfolding. It's always changing, never static. It's always changing or unfolding lawfully in this interdependent way. So we can't isolate anything in the conditioned world from everything else. Like even now what I'm seeing, as I'm seeing many of you in the room, that experience is conditioned by so many things. Like it's conditioned by the past. Having sat up here in this kind of way before, then this experience of seeing right now is being affected by the memory. Because right? the perception I have of seeing all of you, that perception is conditioned by what's been seen previously. And it's also being conditioned by the mood I'm in, and like what happened earlier today. And it's also being conditioned by the pain in my, in my ankle right now. You know, like what we see, if, if I'm experiencing a lot of physical pain, even though it's not related to what I see, it does affect what we see. In the same way, if I was getting a couple massages right now and sitting in a hot tub, then the experience of seeing would be different. You know, the, how the mind interprets it or the meaning the mind gives to the experience of seeing. So this is what we mean by nothing stands apart from everything else. It's conditioned and it's conditioned in an interdependent way. So the Buddha talks from his insight, he talks about two worlds or two aspects of experience two things that can be known. We can know the conditioned world, and as beginners, mostly that's all we know is the conditioned world. We know our sights, our thoughts, our sensations, our emotions, our smells and tastes and sounds. And of course, any interpretation or perception is just 
what we call thinking, you know, falls under the general category of thinking or mental formations, mental constructs. So we have this conditioned experience. We kind of know this, and in an arrogant way, we think this is all there is. So we don't look for what the Buddha calls the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is subtle. And in a way, you know, we've been trained in our culture to just know the conditioned and in, in the way that a fish might never really understand the experience of water, you know, we never really understand the experience of the unconditioned, even though it's as much here as the conditions that we do know, like the seeing that we know and the hearing that we know. And the metaphor, simile, that's used quite a bit is of space. You know, we use the word spacious a lot. It's kind of part of our common language even. But like in this moment, we have to actually work. We have to train the mind to intuit space. This can't happen. The conditioned world can't happen without space. There's no way to separate the seeing and the hearing and the sensations and other aspects of the conditioned experience from the fact that there is space in which all of this is happening. Yet, it never occurs to us to notice space, to appreciate space, to trust space. But it's here. Anybody want to argue there's no space? Right? Of course there's space. So, the Buddha can, like, give teachings like this. He can, he can talk about, or anybody can talk about, uh, hey, notice the space. And then the mind tries to grasp it. Oh, this is the space. But no matter, and the Buddha said this explicitly, no matter how we conceive of the unconditioned, it will never be that. So any conception of it, in Buddhism we have the word sunata, uh, emptiness, and anatta, not self. Because the sense of space um, challenges the sense of a center. Because by definition, the experience of space doesn't have a center. Right? Like if we think about the space of this room, we're very dependent on the idea of the shell of the room. But how about the space of the room when there isn't a shell? Or is the space is space itself, can it ever be contained by a building? No. You can't really do anything to the space itself. Somebody could, one of our sort of local uh, difficult people could come in and throw a can of paint into the room right now. And it might get us, it might get the different conditions in the room colored by the paint, but it can't affect the space of the room. Maybe it affects the air, you know, subtle things. But those are all conditions that can be known. But the space itself can't be affected, no matter what we do. Somebody could, you know, say something really beautiful right now, stand up and, and just knock our socks off with some truth. But that doesn't affect the space of the room that truth and the meaning and the inspiration, that's something that comes and goes. That's a condition that comes and goes. So 
what I'm getting at is that there is this space or the unconditioned, or you could even say the nature, the ultimate nature of the mind is space or empty. Or you could call it love too. I think that's an okay sort of word, although our word of love needs some reformation because we have kind of use it in all sort of ways that aren't maybe so useful in this sense. But love in a universal sense, in a sense of the experience of the mind or the heart that is willing to include everything, willing not to have a problem with anything. Right? That's a kind of love, a universal love, that can understand everything deeply enough that it's okay with it. Does it mean that we don't uh, wish things were better, but we understand the way things are? Just like those of you who are parents and have kids, and they can act out, right? And you could like really wish your kid wasn't acting out, but at the same time you can really get it. You really get why the kid is acting out. And you don't throw the kid out of your heart. You include it. You just know well, this is what happens when children turn 15 or whatever. I don't have kids, but I have taught in the schools quite a bit in the past. And I know like how difficult it can be to be around children or be around myself for that matter. <laughs> but I've learned over the years to like not have a problem with the way that I am. I'm working on the rest of you. <laughs> but I've gotten a lot better with myself. Like, like no matter how despicable, no matter how inappropriate my mind is, no matter how juvenile or... Uh, inflated or any other state my mind visits, I've learned how to include that, not to see it as a mistake. I learned how to do that by not taking it so personally, but by seeing that that terrible state of mind that I'm inhabiting, that it's not self. It's just the movement of nature. It's just the movement of causes and conditions. And to hate it is to set something in motion that's stressful and heavy and unnecessary. And it will come and go on its own all the more when we just understand what it is and don't take it personally. So this intuition of the unconditioned is what allows us to leave everything alone and, ironically, allows us to participate more fully in the world. Because when we leave everything alone, when we understand that this moment is already this way, can't be other than this way, because of causes and conditions, then it's possible to fully connect or engage the moment because I'm not, my mind, psychically, is not in the business of wanting it to be other than it is. So it's easier to show up and to connect and to respond and to live, really. In the same way, if we're so tight, when we're so tight about the pleasant experience that we're having or the unpleasant experience that we're having, not wanting this ever to change because it's so nice or wanting it to change because it's not nice at all, we, can't, we miss our life in that moment because we're involved in not wanting things to be the way they already are. And then we're disconnected. And so how do we know how to respond when we're disconnected? We don't. So we respond in that moment but usually in unskillful ways that have repercussions that cause more problems, more unpleasantness usually, which make us tight. 
And when we're really tight, then when a, a pleasant experience rolls around, we get really tight with it because it's been so unpleasant for so long that when something nice happens, we get desperate and we ruin it by holding it. And we miss it. Because there really are pleasant experiences that come our way from time to time. Really profound moments of being with another human being in a friendly way, being in nature, basic bodily comfort that can be so pleasant in, a, in that ephemeral way, but still pleasant and healing if we let it in, if we're not desperately holding to it, which ruins it. So the healing process that the Buddha discovered wasn't about like being clever and how to be happy, finding that sort of perfect middle way, but it was about this more profound paradigm shift where we're abandoning, noticing how stressful our attachment to pleasantness is and abandoning the attachment. We're not abandoning pleasant experience. You've got to remember that. The Buddha rejected that path of being afraid of pleasant experience. There's nothing inherently wrong with pleasant experience. We just have to learn to let go of attachment. It's the only thing we have to let go of. And we have to let go of the fear of unpleasant. You can do whatever you can do to abandon unpleasant experience in your life. But being afraid of it isn't going to help you do anything. All fear and aversion does is contract the heart. So the Buddha taught that this insight into the unconditioned is something we have to do ourselves. It doesn't matter if someone gives a good talk on the unconditioned, except that hearing about it, here getting this information, can inspire us to look, basically, to be mindful, to investigate our own experience. Like the, the great epithet of the Buddha is, come and see. Ehi pasiko is the Pali words for come and see, check it out. If these teachings on an intellectual level make sense, then pick up the teachings and contemplate them all day long. And put aside some time when you have a relatively simple environment, i.e. our city meditation time, and contemplate these teachings. So what are we contemplating? Well, we sit in a relaxed and still way, and we might use something like the movement of the breath in the body, or we might use sounds, just to help stabilize the attention in the present moment because this insight can only arise when the attention is in the present moment. Because the unconditioned is only one place, here and now. And when our mind is caught up in thoughts about things, then the, that kind of exclusive container of that idea that we're thinking about, in a way, I mean, you, theoretically, or ultimately rather, you can't be disconnected from the present moment because there's only this. But through the process of thinking and being identified with thought, we can be oblivious, unaware of this. So by using simple techniques like being aware of the body sensations or being aware of the breath or being aware of sound or whatever it is that's predominant, we can learn to have a steady, continuous, present moment awareness. And that's important, that it's steady and continuous. And that's a challenge. I mean, that's, for most of us, it takes years to even get close to kind of 
regularly experiencing a steady, continuous, present moment awareness. And then what that does is it sets up, increases the probability of insight. So there we are, the mind is steady, the attention is steady and continuously aware of what? Well, we're aware of the conditions that are coming and going, the sights that are coming and going, or the sounds, or if we're using the breath, the sensations of the breath coming and going, because the breath isn't a static thing, right? It's an unfolding of many diverse sensations. I mean, it's amazingly subtle, the movement of the breath. It's actually very interesting. And just that steady, continuous awareness of the breath or the present moment is deeply satisfying and healing. Just to not be involved in wanting pleasant, wanting to get rid of unpleasant, is already profoundly healing. And, like I said a moment ago, it sets up an insight. So there we are, steady, continuous, feeling the pleasantness, the inner happiness of the mind not caught up in getting rid of unpleasant or holding on to pleasant. And then what happens is because the mind in that experience of being steady and continuous, the mind begins to relate to the conditions with more and more and more and more equanimity, slowly, gradually, over years of practice. And this then leaks through our whole life, so not just in our sitting practice, but we're doing it formally in our sitting practice. And then just generally, our relationship to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience has more of the flavor of equanimity than attachment and aversion. And that, of course, supports the steadiness. And this experience of equanimity, this um, willingness to just let conditions of the moment be the way that they are, always seeing that as an option. I can always just let things be. Sure, it's fine to turn the thermostat up, but I'm okay letting it be. I could go eat a meal, but it's okay being hungry. It's okay feeling that growling or whatever we feel when we're hungry. That equanimity then, it almost, it's like a, the image I like, I forget what teacher said this to me, but it's like you look out the back door, the screen door, right? And you notice, if you've ever done this, most of us have done this, right? You can focus on the screen, and when you really focus on the screen, you really can't see the backyard, you know, because the mind is really just seeing the metal of the screen. And then in a sense, we relax our gaze, and you can see into the backyard, you can see birds, you can see the trees, the leaves keep moving. And actually, when you really do that well, you don't see the screen at all. You can train your mind to really tease out the screen. And this is a little bit like that insight. Because our mind is uh, colored almost always with greed and aversion, it, it creates this relationship with the conditions that are coming and going in our experience. We're always looking for something pleasant, and we're always fearful of something unpleasant arising in our body, around us, in our thoughts. But if we relax, if we relate with equanimity, then it opens up something that was always there but never seen because we've been fixated on the conditions that are coming and going. And we, in a sense, we notice the space of the room or we notice Buddha nature, or the nature of the mind, or we notice true love. Even that's such an overused phrase, but let's reform it. You know, an unconditioned love, 
a love that has no boundaries, no edges, no limitations, unbounded, immeasurable are the words the Buddha used. So maybe that's right here and now, but it's because of our habits of attention that we never notice it. And because we never notice it, we feel so disconnected, so, in a sense, spiritually hungry. But because we don't know what to do with that spiritual hunger, we keep doing what we've always done. We try to get something from the conditions. We try to get release from conditions by living in, you know, big houses and having big cars and, you know, big bodies or tight, firm bodies or, you know, whatever it is that we do to try to make ourselves feel good. But it never really works. So what the Buddha says is cultivate equanimity. Steady your attention with something like the breath. Create or cultivate a continuity of attention. And that will bring up a very peaceful feeling of equanimity. Abide in that that peaceful feeling of equanimity. Relate to your conditions that come and go with equanimity. And you will begin to intuit the unconditioned. And that will become your refuge. And then cultivate that intuition of the unconditioned everywhere in your life. Not just when it's easy, when you're sitting and you've got your peaceful 15 minutes or 30 minutes at home where no one's going to bother you. But in business meetings, in arguments, never lose the intuition of the unconditioned because that's what allows us to be free and skillful in the world. So this is the Buddhist teachings on the middle way. This is what Ajahn Chah talks about in chapter 26 in his book. And we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from other people, your own insights you've had through your life, in your sits, in daily life, questions you have about the talk. Yes, say, say your name, please. Uh, Jason. Um, I've been kind of thinking about this, and uh, uh, I, just, I just want to sort of get your sort of like additional kind of reflection about how we can, I'm really good at this, like sabotaging our own pleasant experiences. Like, I just went on vacation. I was looking forward to the vacation for a long time and uh, you know, get in this sort of craving mode. And then when we're on the, the vacation and I'm with my friends and the weather's really nice and you know, all this fun stuff is going on, but I'm still thinking this needs to be really, really great. <laughs> this needs to be perfect. And then all of a sudden it's like I'm in this really negative state of mind and I'm happy on this perfect vacation. So, I don't know if you just want to talk a little bit more about that. And the practice has sort of helped, because that happens to me, you know, often, but it, it helps. Well, I, I just really appreciate your insight, because you couldn't articulate what you just said if you hadn't seen it, as opposed to just believing it and sort of acting out like whatever that neurotic thought was, you know, that oh, I really want this to last, or I really want this to be great. And so many of us laughed or smiled while you were talking because we know that experience of being on vacation and wanting to be on vacation. Or the joke in this crowd is going, finally getting the money together or getting the time together to go on a meditation retreat. And what do we do? We think about going on a meditation retreat when we're on a meditation retreat, planning our next retreat. (laughs) Or, you know, there we are, having fallen in love with the person we've always wanted to meet, thinking about how much we want to find the person we want to meet. I mean, 
We do this all the time. Finally, we get the meal we've been looking forward to all day, and what do we do? We think about some other kind of meal we'd like to be eating instead of really being there in the experience of eating. So I think what you saw, that insight is the first step. We have to see the insanity of the conditioned habits of the mind so that it doesn't evoke judgment, but it evokes compassion. There's got to be another way. I care about how unproductive, how neurotic this tendency of mind is. It's not personal. I am not personally doing this. This is happening because of habit, right? We just do this out of habit because it's the conditioned habit. So we can, we can respond with combat, compassion. I care about this pattern in the mind. To, like you said, to sabotage pleasant experiences by worrying, by trying to hold, by judging, by comparing, or whatever we might do that creates unnecessary tension in the middle of a pleasant experience. So first we see the insanity of it. The heart moves. That movement of heart, it's like the arising of energy. And then what do we do with that energy? Is we investigate the root causes. How is it that that tendency to whatever it was you were doing, judging it or wanting to hold on to it, what, were, what did the mind see? What did the mind understand? What view was there that led to that mental activity? Because it just didn't come from outer space. There were causes and conditions behind what your mind was doing. And you can see those. And you can keep seeing over and over again how impersonal it all is. Because that's what uh, weakens the pattern. We have to see the three things the Buddha taught. We have to see that it's impermanent, that that pattern comes and goes. It's not permanent. Because if it were permanent, we'd freak out. It's like we'd feel trapped. Like, I, there's no way to change this. It's not permanent. It's a conditioned arising. And when conditions change, like when there's insight and understanding, it won't arise. When the mind's oblivious, then it arises. And when it gets triggered by certain things, then it arises. But when the mind's seen clearly, it doesn't arise. So it's impermanent, it's heavy. When we're identified with it, it's heavy. It hurts. And it's impersonal. It arises impersonally due to causes and conditions. It's nature, it's not self. So when we reflect on these three things, we study it in light of these three um, uh, perspectives, let's say. So the Buddha gave us a big hint. What makes the Buddha different than the rest of us is he, this, he did this, had these insights without hints. We get to do the practice with the hints, the teachings of the Buddha. So he's saying, when you're there noticing this sort of tendency, then if you can, notice that it's impermanent, notice that it's stressful, and notice that it's impersonal. And keep noticing those things. And that weakens it. And one of the things that really supports it is like bringing it up with friends like you did, Casey, because it normalizes the experience. We all know that experience. Even though we're so different, that experience we all know. So the actual way the mind works is very similar, even though the content is quite distinct dependent on, depending on our particular conditions. But the patterns are so similar that we share. Yeah, Derek. <clears throat> So, um, I've been thinking that in practice, it seems like 
we're conditioning our minds <clears throat> in like a behavior sense to see more and think less. But then I think about thinking as this beautiful, naturally arising part of ourselves. And I don't know what to think about that. <laughs> yeah, well, there. I mean, basically, there are skillful thoughts and there are unskillful thoughts. It's not about thinking being bad. That's what we're doing now. We're all here together thinking. You know, I'm talking, but that's thinking. I'm just thinking out loud, and the rest of you are, are thinking silently. And, uh, you know, often it's productive to do that. So thinking that, I mean, just in a simplistic way, thinking that inspires investigation, like looking at opening to things as they are, a radical openness, that kind of thinking is quite useful because it leads to the transformation of understanding by being open. When we're just thinking, it's very hard for the view, the understanding to change because we're like in a closed loop. Unless new information gets in, the process of thinking doesn't really change. We just basically keep telling ourselves the same thing in different ways. But when thinking leads to moments of like a sense of being open and clear, then it's like direct data comes in. And then that then the whatever thinking, whatever understanding arises, now it's different because there's new information. The mind, the heart has seen, have, has opened, and then the thinking's different now. And then that thinking, if that leads to another moment of being open, another moment of being mindful, then the view, the thinking, the because that's actually the only problem for human beings is the thinking, is the view that comes out of the thinking or that's related to the thinking. That's the only thing that has to be transformed. But it can't transform itself. We can't think our way to wisdom. The thinking can, and the, the sort of analytical part of our intellect, it can get the sense of what the problem is. Oh, the problem is there's this repetition and there's nothing to transform it. And it can realize that the transformation comes when the thinking is put down. But then thinking picks up and realizes, oh, things have changed, right? So insight is one thing, and then the sort of integration of the insight, where the understanding gets transformed. The mind sees something, and then in a sense the mind understands what it just saw. It has to explain itself. It has to use language to explain to itself what just happened, right? So the whole process of this path is we're transforming our understanding, you know, the meaning the mind is giving to this body-mind experience or this life. So thinking is not bad. It's part of the package of practice. Yeah, and then over here. Today was a really challenging sit for me, mostly because of a lot of just physical pain in my legs. And I just wanted quickly to uh, ask the question about what sort of my understanding of how I approach meditation, which involves, uh, like you say, the middle way and experiencing the fact that, you know, okay, now I'm in some physical pain, and that physical pain happened because I decided to come here and sit for a certain period of time. And the question of, like, <laughs> um, when, it, when it's a, a part of the practice itself, like, that the, the, the challenge is, is showing up, like, I, I just, I guess I, I wonder, um, 
like I'm trying to prepare myself for doing things like going on retreats and things. Yeah. Like I would like to do more, but like it's, it becomes this very challenging thing to me uh, because of the fact that it's really like it becomes really un like uh, I feel like I lose any sort of sense of what I'm doing when all I can think of is when is the bell going to ring? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's a really good point because we uh, we are. We have to respect the mind's habit to recoil from pain. It's just built very deeply, and we have to gradually work with it. So you can't really transform the mind's relationship to physical pain um, by just muscling, like just holding the body still, because at best all that's going to do is increase our tolerance for physical pain, but not our insight or our, our understanding. We have to work with pain that's tolerable first. And if it's not, if the pain that you're experiencing is you can't stay relatively relaxed with, then you really need to stand or stretch out the limb or use a chair because, or, or do sitting and then walking and sitting. So break up the period of time. Like you want to practice for 45 minutes, but you can only sit comfortably for 15. Then sit comfortably for 15 do walking meditation for 15, sit again for 15, something like that. Because when the pain is workable, then even though there is physical pain, the mind is aware that there's physical pain, but it trusts it. It, it doesn't fear its demise. You know, it's like, because that's what happens when it's too much. We, It triggers like that life and death, fight or flight syndrome, where the mind literally starts to panic. And then the body responds by getting tighter, which just makes it worse. So that's why it doesn't really help to sort of muscle it out through the set to, the, to get to the end. Better to just stretch the limb or make an adjustment, whatever you have to do. But when it is, when the body and mind can stay relatively relaxed, then what that allows for is this investigation. And it goes something like, I wonder if the mind is doing something now, right now, that's contributing to this experience of pain? Is there a way that the mind can relate, can accept, can understand this experience, this actual experience? So I'm not trying to make it different. I'm just trying to understand part of the causes and conditions. Part of it is true that you're feeling pain because you came here tonight, or you're feeling pain because you haven't stretched your whole life, or because we've sat in chairs our whole life and not on the floor our whole life. There are many reasons, you know, we eat too much wheat and there's a lot of inflammation or we have too much sugar and there's a lot of inflammation or who knows all the different causes and conditions for our stiffness. We had an injury when we were young. But part of the causes and conditions is right now how the mind is understanding or relating to this pain. I hate this pain. It's not fair. That attitude alone is a contracted attitude. So it's contributing to the experience that we're having in the moment. Um, Caring about the pain is a different way of relating to the pain. Or opening up the attention to include many objects. Like when we really focus on the pain, it's like amplifies it. Anything you pay very close attention gets bigger. It's like, uh, well, there are many examples of this. But if we like open, like uh, Joko Beck, this well-known Zen teacher who died recently, a wonderful <coughs> Western teacher, she had this acronym ABC, a bigger container. So it's like you open up the field of awareness. 
So that pain is still there, but it's just one of many, many objects of experience. So you, it changes our perspective on it. So there are many ways to modify the experience of pain, and we begin to relate to it in a relative way. You know, I can make this huge self-drama out of it, or it can just be pain. Oh, it's just pain being numb. No. So that's what, but we can only do that when we have a balanced relationship with the physical pain. If the mind's already in a panic mode or a contracted mode, it's better to start over with a relatively easeful experience of the body, whatever you have to do. As long as you're not disturbing the people around you. Like some people will sit in a chair and just stand for a while, sit for a while, or they're sit on a cushion and there's an empty chair behind them and they sit there for a while and then they're moved. Like when they're on retreat, for example, people do that. All alternate between different postures, not necessarily in one sit, but through the day, sometimes in a chair, sometimes kneeling, sometimes sitting cross-legged, um, sometimes lying down. And uh, the Buddha taught that we want to practice in all the postures. So it's really okay to learn. It makes it easier transition to practice in daily life when we've used the different postures. I'm going to go to Jeff first, and then if there's time. <coughs> yeah, Jeff. Um, it's been something I've been kind of wanting to ask for a while because it, it keeps coming up to my mind when I hear you speaking of um, liberation in, in moments. Because uh, I, I grew up in a Christian tradition where there was this idea of heaven. And um, when I studied Buddhism when I was younger, I, I think I interpreted, you know, there's this phrase, attaining enlightenment. And, and there was this figure of a person who attained enlightenment. And I don't mean to put it in quotes in a disrespectful way, but it was the way I interpreted that, I think, was based on my worldview as having grown up Christian and not really buying into it anymore, but still having vestiges of that uh, way of thinking about existence in my head. And, uh, so when I, when I hear you talk about um, liberation in moments, I have trouble reconciling. You know, I used to think, well, I understood a lot about Buddhism intellectually, but I never really could practice because I always felt like I'll never attain enlightenment. I'm not yeah. ever going to be a monk. I'm not ever going to be perfect. And I'm not ever, just like I don't feel like I'll ever get to heaven. Yeah. So I get stuck with this idea, and then it um, it detracts from my ability to recognize that liberation can happen anytime, anywhere, in any moment. And I just wonder if there's anything more about that that you have. Well, I thought you were really articulate. Great points. And I think this is uh, can be and probably is a trap for all of us at times because the whole idea of attainment is a misunderstanding because it implies there's a somebody to attain something. I don't want to go into that now. We don't have time. But I think your point is really important. And, and I, I wish I had used the word release instead of liberation. I mean, liberation is a useful word. But more visceral terms, I think, are just generally easier to work with. Moments of release, right? Because we know that. How many times have we been in a very contracted state and then in a moment the mind, in a sense, recognizes it, recognizes it's unnecess that it's unnecessary, and because it understands it, it just like implodes or drops away. 
and we go from being in a contracted, all caught up, to, oh, it's okay. And so we know that release. So we know that moment of release. And then it's just a question of, why can't that be every moment? Well, it's just the mind isn't understanding continuously. It has moments of understanding what's unnecessary, and then it's forgetful for a while. And often, we need intensely unpleasant experience to be motivated to pay careful attention. But maybe we can cultivate a, a, an attention that's full of care continuously, and then those moments of release can become more and more continuous. But I, I appreciate what you said, because I think it's much more skillful. It has to, and I, and I sort of mentioned this at the beginning, we really have to ground this practice in the here and now, and that happiness or freedom or release is available here and now. We have to have an open mind about that. Otherwise, we do fall into the trap. And that's common. Maybe Uttara can speak to this, people who grew up in Buddhist cultures, that there is this very common belief among some of the people in Buddhist cultures that enlightenment is impossible for me. You know, it's maybe some of the monks, maybe some of the nuns can, but all lay people can do is maybe cultivate generosity, develop what's called merit, like set in motion good things so that in the future maybe I can be reborn or have more favorable conditions and do the practice and experience real release. And so a lot of what we're doing in practice is realizing, no, it is possible to experience moments of release. And once we recognize that clearly, then it begs the question, well, why not this moment? What's in the way of release this moment? We do have to end it here, sorry. But let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Time enough for one or two breaths together. Grateful for all the women, all the men who've practiced over the centuries in their busy lives, with their neurotic minds, just like us. So now it's our turn to practice as best we can, to realize moments of release and peace and love, wisdom and compassion, and to set it in motion in our life, in our world. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.